rest of us. Um, I'm going to open up to Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Uh, We'll go down through the chapter. So it reads, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of of the Lord, with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, we do pray uh, that we would be ever more aware of your presence here this morning. Uh, that in these words, you would speak not only to our hearts, Lord, but you would both comfort and afflict those of us who need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we know um, some of Moses' story here, that he's come from the mountain and um, left left Sinai, left Horeb, the burning bush, and all of that, and uh, is, is sort of on his way to fulfill the thing that God has called him to fulfill. He's, we think, headed back to Egypt, but then we discover that he actually goes back to Midian. He goes back to his family's uh, tent, I was going to say house, probably tent, uh, to get Jethro, his father-in-law, to get his permission, to get his blessing, in order to go back to Egypt and do the thing that God's called him to do. God's been revealed to Moses. He's shown up in not just a miraculous way, but a unique way, um, actually giving him his own name. Uh, names have a lot of power. I was going to say in the Old Testament, but that's or in the Bible, but it's just true. Names have a lot of power. And so to know God's name and for Moses to be the one who has heard God say his own name, to then come back into Egypt and say, the one who is I will be what I will be, that one is calling me to lead you out of this place. And yet Moses is still reticent. Last week, that's what we talked about, his reticence, his even rebellion. He's got all kinds of excuses, why not him? Not the right time, 
He's got a field he needs to take care of. He's got some little kids back at home. Um, he's not very good at speaking. The people don't want to hear him. He already tried to free them, and that ended up badly. That's why he's in Midian in the first place. What if they don't listen? He gets down. I think it's like the fifth objection is finally, Lord, just please send someone else. And really, it's this uncovering of Moses' actual heart. It's this sort of, I mean, you've lived this, I'm assuming, if you've spent any time with God. You've got reasons why things ought to go your way, and yet God keeps asking them to go his way. And at the bottom of all of those reasons, it's just the fact that you just don't want to. That we're just rebellious. That we just have this part of us that desires that we would in fact be God. And that God would participate with us. I was wondering this morning as I was going over this again whether Moses is a kind of type of Israel. What it would have been like for Israel to read this story for the last, you know, for the two, three, four, five thousand years. And whether they see in Moses an image of themselves as a people. A people who have all of the revelation. A people who have every reason to follow God. Who have every sign and miracle on their side. Who have every calling and gifting. They've been equipped, all of this stuff. And yet, it's still hard to do it. But God's message to the people we discover. He has... One message, it shows up twice in this passage to two, in two directions, and I think it shows up this morning. God's message to the people that he will judge, we discover, is very much like the message to the people that he loves and will save. Both judgment and affirmation are messages of rescue and promise. Rescue from sin and death, and the promise of communion and life. So here's how it goes. The message that he gives to Moses to take to Pharaoh. He picks it up. Pharaoh, release my firstborn. The firstborn here is Israel. It's the nation. It's the people. God's firstborn. The people that he loves, the people that he has poured his life into and that he has entrusted his inheritance to. That's the critical piece. It's not actually about birth order, right? It's about who's going to be the heir. It's about who's going to receive the promises of God. Pharaoh, release my firstborn, and if you don't release my firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn. Release them so that they can come worship me. The problem that this sets up for Pharaoh is Pharaoh's whole conception of the world, Pharaoh's whole conception of his world, is that nobody tells him what to do. He actually lives and functions off of that idea. So it's not just about losing the workforce, right? This is not just an economic problem for Pharaoh. None of these things are ever just economic. This is a spiritual problem for Pharaoh because if he listens to God, he's admitted that he's not the God that he said he was. Admit that you have no right to them. Admit that you don't have a claim on Israel. They're not yours. You don't own them. Why? Because you can't own people. Because all people ultimately 
are under and belong to the Lord. And so the Lord has the final word. But this also means that for Pharaoh, he has to reorder his sense, like I said, of where he is. He has to, has to accept a lower place in the cosmos. He's not at the pinnacle. God's challenge, if you don't release my firstborn, I will take, I will kill your firstborn, is the kind of throwing down gauntlet. If you want to be a god, if you put yourself into that position that I'm the one who can not just be a slave owner, but who can claim lordship over the known world, if you want to be that kind of god, then you can be my rival. If that's who you want to be, then that's how I will treat you. Hearing words like this, the demons shudder. They've made their choice. Release my firstborn, or I take yours. We could preach this message to all kinds of people, including some of us in this room this morning. It's easy to look out and kind of see the people out there who have put themselves, who have arrogated themselves, who have lifted themselves up to the place of God. Who have said, I'm going to be my own God, and I'm going to let the fact that I am my own God drive and determine my life. What we discover here is that that message is not just to Pharaoh. We discover that that message is also to Moses. And this is the difficulty. I, I get, you know, I get real excited about preaching a couple kinds of texts. Um, uh, genealogies, I love, I love a genealogy, okay? <laughs> um, and, and this kind of just weird story. Because <laughs> there's always more in these weird stories than we're willing to admit, and or than we can see at, at first glance. And so we kind of have to look at them and wrestle with them. And, you know, it's like, Sometimes hard work is the best kind of work. And so, um, so this is the story. This is the hard, weird kind of story of Exodus 4, right? So Moses goes, and, and he asks his, his father-in-law for permission. He gives him his blessing, or maybe not permission, but his blessing. He gives him his blessing, go in peace. Uh, he then loads up his wife and sons. They head down to Egypt on a donkey. Uh, it's kind of, you know, to Mary and Joseph, but we're not going to get into that today. And then the Lord said to Moses, so um, as they're on their way, down into Egypt from Midian, okay? He's already gotten this message for what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh. And then it says in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Super clear, right? Here's my prophet. Here's Moses. Here's the one who I've chosen and told my name. He's the only one thus far who knows it, right? And, and, and here he is, and as he goes down to fulfill the mission that I've called him to fulfill, I'm going to show up to him. He pulls over in a wide spot in the road. They're camping. They're kind of spending the night there. And here comes God to kill Moses. Go figure, right? <laughs> now, what is that all about? Why would the Lord look to kill his own prophet? Why would the Lord be against the one that he called? Why would he give him a job to do, and all of a sudden, the one that he gave the job to do is suffering? 
maybe we know that experience. Lord, why would you set me on this path? And all of a sudden, it's really hard to walk this path. Lord, why would you give me this mission, this, this vision, this vocation? Why would you place me in this way? And then all of a sudden, it feels like I'm on the edge of a cliff. And as I look at all the evidence around me, even though I look behind me and it seems good, I look forward and it looks like you're trying to kill me. Do you want me dead? Does that glorify you? There's one of the Psalms that says that. Do dead men sing your praises? What we discover about Moses is that he's called and he's equipped with the message. And he's got a secret. Moses has a big secret. Moses is kind of an unrepentant prophet. We know that he's reluctant. We know that he doesn't really want to go. And we don't know all of the reasons why, but this might be it. Because Moses, even though he's born in Israel with a Hebrew mother and father, and even though he was with them until he was three months old, so we can assume that Moses himself was circumcised, and then he was placed in the river and taken up and raised in the Egyptian court. What we discover here is that Moses himself, the leader and the judge and the prophet of Israel, in fact, he even at this point kind of has the priestly role of Israel. He's the go-between for Israel and God. But Moses has not circumcised his own son. Gershom, that sojourner, that's what his name means, sojourner. It, at the, we discover him at the end of chapter 2, and he has not committed his own son to the Lord in faithfulness and obedience the way that the Lord asked. And so here is Moses on the way, and God shows up outside of his tent, ready to kill him. Some people assume this is maybe through some kind of illness or something because Moses is knocked out. He's apparently not able to do it. His wife steps in and saves his life, circumcises Gershom. It gets weird. Circumcises Gershom, <laughs> takes the foreskin of his firstborn son, touches it to uh, Moses' feet, um, which is a euphemism for uh, his feet. Um, <laughs> and, and in that says, you are a bridegroom of blood. There's sort of this transfer of, of the work that was done in Gershom. There's a sort of transfer into Moses' own life, and that somehow in the blood of Gershom sort of suffering in this way, it actually saves Moses. That his family is brought back together in the hope and the trust and the faithfulness that all the members of the family now are living under God's protection because they have somehow fulfilled the covenant promise of God. Now that's a weird story. And that's a story that doesn't totally or fully connect with the way that we see the world. Right? God usually doesn't try to kill his own people. And he doesn't then relent because they circumcised somebody. And because there was this transfer 
But this is the story that Moses tells about himself in some way. Well, we've got to get clear in our head if we're going to understand this and sort of wrap our minds around it, is that the call of God, the vocation that God puts on our life, whether that is in sort of ministry or in our family or in our work or in our own sort of personal faith, the call of God is not, it's not about our happiness. And it's not about us having a good time. It's it's actually about our sanctification. It's about us being made holy. That's what our life is about. What's the station that you're in right now? Are you married? Are you single? Are you working? Are you unemployed? Are you retired? Are you looking forward to a career? You working on a driver's license? You trying to figure out how to love the people who live next door to you? To work up the courage to meet the people who live next door to you? What's the station that you find yourself in right now? All of the above? <laughs> working and retired. Good. I, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, all the stations, those places that you find yourself, the people that you find yourself among. This is the space in which God wants to begin your sanctifying work, his sanctifying work in you. This is the place that God desires to enter into the space that you are. So often we have this idea that I've got to get three or four or five or six or ten things worked out before God can actually do the work that God wants. I've got projects I need to finish. I've got a lawn I need to mow, all of that. And then God can begin to do this work of sanctification. No, God wants to begin with you where you are. And he doesn't wait until all of that is done to call you into some sort of mission. He doesn't wait until that's accomplished to call you into something. Right? He calls you now, asks you to respond, and equips you as you go. The problem becomes when we hold stuff back knowingly, Consciously, when we say, okay, I know, God, that you've got this thing you want me to do, you have this person you want me to be, but I really have this thing that I've sort of got over here. Maybe it's an uncircumcised son. Maybe it's a truck I won't let God use. Maybe it's a relationship I refuse to commit. I'm serious when I say that the promise of God is communion and life. Any calling from God is an invitation to deep communion and deep life with God. I know it's probably a little cliche. I can't help hear the words not really of Eric Liddell, but of the actor who played Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire, right? <laughs> Who's talking to Jenny about the conflict between do I become a missionary to China or do I run in the Olympic Games? <laughs> and he says, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Right? <laughs> the bad Scottish accent is actually a part of it. You have to do that. 
The point being that here is Eric, and he's been given this thing to do. He's been given this mission, this vocation, but his tension is with God's made me to do two good things. Right? And I know that I, if I live fully into God's purposes, it's a life of pleasure. When I live fully into God's vocation for me, it's a life of joy. Whether that's a physical vocation in running or a sort of ministerial vocation in service. Right? Following God unlocks this life of promise, this life of fulfilled promise. But Moses, we see, is a lot more like us than Eric. <laughs> because what Moses sought to do was to fulfill part of his vocation and not all of it. Was to go after part of what God had called him to do when God absolutely insisted and rubbed his face in it and said, you've got to do this thing but meanwhile keep his uncircumcised firstborn son a secret. Moses sought to escape the call in order to protect that part of him that had not yet been surrendered. There was some element in Moses that existed like this gangrenous attachment in his soul. He's Hebrew by birth. He becomes Hebrew again by choice when he leaves Egypt. But he'd not yet surrendered that part of his soul where his Midianite son Gershon resided. And I'm sure for Moses out in the desert it would, would have been difficult to circumcise his son. I'm sure there were cultural barriers that Jethro, the head of the house, would have had a say in what happened to his grandsons. I'm sure that Moses, having just experienced the trauma of Egypt and a flight from everybody that he knew and loved, had a little bit of recovery to do, that there was some laziness even maybe there, some fear. But I wonder, what's the status of our firstborn? There was a story um, in Holiness Today, a kind of Nazarene magazine. Um, this, was, this was about 12 years ago. I think it's 2009. And uh, David Busick wrote it. He's, he was the pastor. Uh, he's, current, he's a general superintendent now, but he was the pastor of a big church in Oklahoma City, uh, Bethany First Church. Um, and this is what he wrote. One Sunday morning, I preached a simple sermon about the meaning and significance of baptism saying, quote, something happens in the water. Then I invited anyone who would like to be baptized to come forward. I said, if you have a change of heart, we have a change of clothes. Something amazing happened. People began to come forward. By the end of the morning in two long worship services, 173 people were baptized. This included young and old. The oldest was 94. First-time visitors, entire families together. One young woman, new to the church, was so moved by what happened that she came down to the front after the first service, prayed to receive Christ, and was baptized in the second service. It was truly a God-appointed and God-anointed moment. I've never seen such instantaneous obedience, freedom in the spirit, and overwhelming joy in my lifetime. It was like we were experiencing a mini Pentecost. That next week, so many people responded saying, I wish I had been baptized, that we baptized another 97 people two weeks later. Within three weeks, nearly 10% of our active congregation was baptized. Crazy story, right? Just simple, 
preaching, here it is, there's something in the water. If you want to respond, come and respond. And God does this kind of Pentecostal moment right there. Now, I couldn't find it online. But I knew David Busick when he was the president at, at seminary. And he told us this story a little differently. <laughs> Which is that after that first week, he went and baptized those 173. And then he was talking to his mom about the event. And um, asked her, he wasn't raised especially Christian, he asked his mom about his own baptism because he couldn't remember it. And she kind of goes, well, yeah, you were baptized. Now, at this point, Busick, he's graduated, gone to seminary, uh, been ordained, been confirmed. I mean, all of that sort of stuff. It's like a process. It doesn't happen overnight. He's gone through this whole thing. He pastored a church in the East Bay. He then went back to Oklahoma and pastored really like the largest church in the region. Okay? And his mom's like, yeah, no, like definitely. You were baptized, I promise you. Okay, but mom, like when? You were. Don't worry about it. Like, but like, at what time, at what place was I baptized? Well, okay, you were probably baptized. <laughs> well, <laughs> right? And so like kind of pressing her and, and, and putting her to the fire discovers, okay, I have not actually done this thing, which is pretty fundamental and basic to what it means to be a Christian. He had, in some sense, an uncircumcised firstborn. <laughs> He's got Gershon sitting there. And so, one of the people who is baptized was him. Up as the senior pastor of this really large congregation that does big things, that's connected to a major Nazarene institution of higher education, all of this stuff, and did the first thing that you do as a Christian which was to go under the water, to come back up. And we kind of look at that and go, oh, isn't that great? But I can tell you from the internal experience, sometimes when you're in a role of sort of spiritual authority, and you've experienced this, it becomes really hard all of a sudden to get humble about who you really are. Because the lie is that if I'm honest about who I am, I'm going to lose what I have. If I'm open about my suffering, if I'm open about the way that my own soul is deformed, then nobody is going to trust me with theirs. So we begin to create little walls. Parts of our life that the light is not welcome into parts of who we are that we don't share with anyone. See, life in Christ is covenantal life. It's a life in which we come to the Lord and say, here I am, do what you will with me. God then says, great, I'll take you, and here's the sign that I'm going to give you. The first of the signs that shows up in Abraham is circumcision. But we discover in Paul, for example, so this is our reading from, well, let me just open to it there. Our reading in Romans 9 kind of gives this story of what it was like for 
God to harden Pharaoh's heart. But he pushes on in chapter 10. And this is the verse that we evangelicals really love. Chapter 10, verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does it take to come from that life of darkness into this life of light? Well, it takes confession with your mouth and belief in your heart. Right? You make a transformation and you do something. What we miss so often in our world is that to confess publicly with your mouth meant that you were also going under the water. It meant that you were also involved in this practice of I'm going to throw myself into the covenantal sacramental life of the church. To be bound to Christ is to be bound to his people. And so if we were coming to Christ in obedience and submission, rather than doing what Pharaoh did, putting ourselves at the top and deciding when we do those things, we would come and be baptized. Paul says in Colossians 2, in him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul sees really clearly, I mean, we can sort of pluck out Romans 10, 9, but when you look at all of what Paul wants to say, we come to be convicted and to confess and believe that Jesus is the Lord over all creation, right? That he is the one who saves. But in order to participate in that, we not only believe with our heart and confess with our mouth, we also submit our bodies to the work of Christ, who himself did not avoid baptism. Right? Jesus himself goes through the waters. Jesus himself submits to somebody else, is humbled by John the Baptist, and baptized there in the Jordan. So confess and believe. Be circumcised in your heart. Be baptized. These are all a part of the same process. These are all the, same, the words for the same thing. John Wesley, kind of our theological grandfather, talked about communion, the Eucharist. And in his world, it was much more of a closed table. You had to kind of show your card <laughs> in order to come to the table. And one of Wesley's kind of great um, innovations, if you want to call it that, one of the changes that he made was to say, look, this is an open table. This is for anybody who desires to come to Christ. And so we have those words in our own liturgy. Anybody who believes in Christ and confesses him unto salvation is welcome at this table. He called it a converting ordinance, right? That rather than coming to Jesus and then coming to the table, you could come to the table to receive Jesus. Right? So if anybody wonders why we don't have altar calls, we do them every week. I ask you to come receive Jesus every single week, right? And it's what we do here at the altar. But our, what's the word? <laughs> our problem in the United States is that we take, we have this way of taking like an initial sort of openness of something and then running with it. 
we go, well, the thief on the cross didn't have to be baptized in order to go to paradise, so I guess baptism's not really that big of a deal, right? We go, well, John Wesley said it's a converting ordinance, so I can come to the table without baptism. And pretty soon, what we've done and what we have is a church that pays no attention to the physical. It's a church that acts as though the material things of life don't really matter. That acts as though the, the things that we do when we gather, that we say are holy, are not really that big of a deal. And so we have this tension, and as I sit here and read Moses' story, I'm just convicted that we have some uncircumcised firstborns. That those of us that would say, well, it's all just a symbol, doesn't really mean anything, have misunderstood the power and the meaning of symbols. begins to corrode this sacred vision of creation. And we begin to allow ourselves to preach against our enemies while we harbor private rebellions against God's command. This afternoon after lunch, um, or after service, we're going to have lunch, and I'm going to share some things um, I picked up at a at a conference um, um, a few weeks back and been just really thinking about for weeks here. Um, the main idea of what I want to share, and I hope if you have time, you'll you'll come and and sort of wrestle with some of it with me, is this idea that we live in a secular world, right? We live in a world that is so secular that is so, um, and and I don't just mean like people, the bad people out there are secular. I mean, we're all secular, right? It's, it's fully a part of the church, too, um, where we sort of have this division between God and what we do. And occasionally, God sort of dips down into our world, but, but we sort of have this separation where we can look at what happens here and say, well, it's just a table or it's just bread and juice. But it's not a big step from there to say, well, it's just a little bit of sin by an unimportant member of God's family. I mean, who am I really? You know. As I read here in Exodus, the issues that we're dealing with, the thing that is at stake here is so critical. God takes Ordinary things. Sinai isn't really a special mountain, but he uses it. The bush on the side of that mountain is not really a special bush, but he takes it and he uses it. The staff in Moses' hand wasn't made out of magic wood, but God takes it and uses it to free a people. Moses himself is really just a rebellious runaway prince, and yet God takes him and uses him. And so you see, what we do when we degrade those things that are sacred and holy to being just stuff and just symbols is 
ultimately that begins to leak out. Until all of a sudden the whole world around us is just stuff. And God's got to come in and scrap all that stuff and start over in order to really do what God wants to do. And friends, that is not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that he entered into that stuff, that God himself became that stuff so that we might become like him. And it's important because he rescues us from this boring, flat vision of the world in which everything is just stuff that we can use so that we can come into his promise. I was at kids camp this week um, with the little kids, second to fourth graders. They let Emmaus slide in on a technicality. Um, and so Emmaus going into first grade, Caden was there, he's going into second grade. And we had these other kids, mostly older kids in our cabin. But first day, um, we go to the zip line. I've never been to Diamond Arrow. I know everybody, like, people are gasping and clutching their pearls, and I've never been to Diamond Arrow. But uh, I saw Rosalie's family there. Uh, <laughs> Jim and Lori were there cleaning up in the, uh, uh, in the cafeteria. Um, but as we get to the zip line on the very first day, I'm in my head, because I've heard people talk about how scary the zip line is, I'm thinking, well, first off, there's no way Emmaus does this. Um, he just spent like a week hanging onto his tooth and just didn't want to lose it. Cause, but he just lost it here during the fifth song, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I kind of show up and the, 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 the older kids who have all done it before, they've all been there in years before, they're sitting down going, oh, no way, I'm not doing the zip line. No way, no way, no way. That's too scary, right? And as I'm getting my, uh, I'm getting my uh, you know, harness on and, um, and then I'm helping Emmaus, get his on, and then Caden, I didn't even get a picture because Caden just like shoots up the tree, jumps onto the platform, and I look up and he's like already like halfway across the field, just flying down the thing, right? Emmaus got up and he kind of freaked out and he came down and they said, you could go together. Okay, so we like clipped in together and he was hanging onto me and I almost suffocated, uh, but we, <laughs> we were able to jump off and, um, <laughs> and make it through the zip line together, right? But the thing is, is that the only people who actually got to experience and live the zip line, I asked Emmaus, like, did you have fun? Or I said, did you have little fun? Yeah. You know, <laughs> did you have medium fun? Yeah, I had medium fun on the zip line. Okay, so we got up to medium fun. Hopefully next year, maybe we'll get up to big fun. Um, but the reason, <laughs> in order to actually live that, we had to push through something. Right, and so here's here's my point here with this kind of silly zipline story is that it rescued from this world of just sort of flat, busy, harried, living sort of split end kind of life where we're just so packed full of stuff and we're so busy and we're so active that we never actually hear the voice of God. We get rescued from that life and live instead into the promise of God. But in order to do that, guess what we have to give up? We have to surrender quite a bit and become a different kind of people in order to move from that secular world into a world that is full, and I promise you it's full of the sacred life of God. It is so packed full of that life and that presence, but we've got to surrender. 
surrender something if we're going to see it. God's promise. Promise of his presence. And that presence sometimes shows outside your tent when you're camping and it's terrifying. But the promised land is that sacramental world that's penetrated and shot through with the consciousness of God. With the love of God with the, with the richness of his son. It's a world where your defects and your difficulties and all the areas that you and your own spirit and soul and emotions and me and mine, where we are immature, where we struggle and suffer, those things are not something to be avoided. There's something to be looked straight at because we know that that's the place that God will begin his salvation. That's the place that God will begin our, sanctify, our sanctification. But it means we have to surrender. The gospel reading today from Luke 2, thank you, Jim, um, is the story of Mary and Joseph bringing their firstborn son, Jesus, to the temple to be circumcised. And here they come in faithful to the law in the way that the guy who wrote the law, Moses, was not. And they present Jesus, and he's circumcised. And what do they discover? These two old people, Simeon and Anna waiting to receive him. Some of us are super young. Maybe they're at children's church right now and have things they need to surrender to God. Some of us are medium young and have things that we need to surrender to God. No, Tom, I'm sorry. Some of us are not so young. <laughs> Some of us are Simeon and Anna old and still have things we need to surrender to God. And the unique thing about the church, friends, is that there's no shame in that. There's no shame. Because the glory of God is that he meets us in our weakness. I pray that as we come to this table as we eat this bread, as we drink this cup, we would come with the confidence that God wants to circumcise our hearts. That he wants to baptize our minds. That he wants to sanctify our eyes and our hands so that the circumcision to him is good and righteous and full of life. Lord Jesus, in your goodness and in your kindness, I pray that you would lift up our weak efforts to love you, to pray to you, to serve you. Lord, would you take that twinge in our heart and allow us to submit it to you. And the knowledge that we have got to lean on you like Simeon and Anna if we are ever going to be saved. And to see, Lord, in your, judge, in your judgment an opportunity to come to you in, in surrender. Lord, we pray these things, believing in you, trusting in you, and knowing that you will do it.